All right. Anybody remember where we were at last week in Scripture? We looked at primarily at two different chapters. Ezekiel. Yeah, we were in Ezekiel. In Jeremiah. Yep. Do you guys remember what chapters that talk about the new covenant? So we were in um, Jeremiah chapter, we looked at chapter 30, but primarily chapter 31. And then Ezekiel chapter 36. These are your two primary Old Testament texts on the New Covenant. And today we're going to be getting into, um, where are we going? We're going to Hebrews a little bit. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8. And then uh, we're not going to look at 2 Corinthians 3, but that's another good chapter that talks about the New Covenant in the New Testament. So those are four of the primary chapters that you'll find reference to the New Covenant in. Also, 1 Corinthians 11, which we're starting today at the end when we get to the, the Lord's Supper. That talks about the initiation of the, the New Covenant. But last week we ended up with Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want to start off this morning by looking at the first several verses of Ezekiel 37. But before we do that, um, what have we been looking at throughout this process, this little detour going through uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and why are we talking about these chapters in the midst of ecclesiology when we're supposed to be talking about the church? Why are we here? Because of Israel and the church, as far as you know, some people believe that the church today is promises and stuff that apply to Israel, it's not applied to the church, and stuff yeah. like that. Why would they believe that? Is there any ground, any reason for them believing that? There must be. Because, I mean, it says, it says in the New Testament that we are wild branches grafted onto the, to the tree of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of the you know, it, it, the progressive revelation that God made, that he, he had given un, uh, unconditional, unconditional covenants to Israel prior to Christ. And then when Christ came along, the, it was the new covenant. And it, and it changed, didn't change the way that we're saved, but it changed the... Um, The, the depth and the meaning of what it means to be brought into right. Christ is, right. is different. We are it, indwelled with the Holy Spirit, like we talked about. It brought everyone in, all the Gentiles yeah. that were formerly um, excluded from, from Israel. Basically. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the mystery that we talk about in Ephesians 3, right? That's a, as far like, as the Gentiles now being allowed, yeah, that, just the Jews. That, that way has been open, been made available for, for everybody. It's not just this covenant that God had with the Jews. So as we look through these chapters, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, we see that this promise that God is making, he's making with the nation of Israel, what we call ethnic Israel. Um, and he's saying, I will make within you a, a clean heart. I am going to take your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Um, you're going to have a, an understanding of who I am. I'm going to dwell within you pretty much. And that's a promise, a covenant that he made with Israel. And you and I as Gentiles have the privilege of being grafted into that covenant, but that wasn't originally made for us. It wasn't originally meant for us. Jerry. Well, is, uh, am I wrong to assume that the fact that Israel sinned so badly in crucifying Christ and that God dispersed them in the AD not to be seen again for so many years. Did that also give a lot of rise to the replacement theology? Yep. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week about how that um, brought about that whole understanding of, well, there can be a literal thousand year reign because this was made to the nation of Israel, and Israel, there is no Israel no more, so it must have been spiritual. And at that same time, the, the Gnostics were bringing up this whole idea of uh, 
physical being bad, right? Flesh is bad, spirit is good. Um, and that kind of ruined everybody's uh, Christology. So they thought, well, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, but he just came in the spirit of Christ. But that same mentality, that same thought process led people to believe that spiritualizing stuff was better than understanding it in a literal grammatical sense. Um, at the same point in time, Origen came on the scene and he started to introduce that idea of allegorizing the text, of taking a plain, simple text and trying to abstract the spiritual meaning and see well, what does this what does this mean spiritually and how can I interpret this in uh, a mystical type of sense. So yeah, all those things kind of played into the development of all millennialism and this refusal of Israel being Israel and saying that uh, the church is now Israel. And then also we talk about the word that is used for church, ecclesia, a, a group, a gathering, a called out assembly. And that same terminology is used of Israel as well. But we looked at the, the first mention of the church in the New Testament, Matthew 16, 18, how Christ said, I will build my church, future tense, right? So there are two different groups, two different gatherings, two different ecclesias called out ones. Israel is distinct from the church. So the point of all that is that we've got to be careful not to put our confidence in man, to keep our confidence in God's word. Absolutely. In spite of what it looks like at the moment, mm -hmm. or just a paper, which appears for a moment and vanishes Yeah. Uh, we're, we're a stupid paper, <laughs> so we need to be really careful, for sure. And we talked about how on, on our side, um, people that would agree more with us, dispensationalists, we have uh, a historical tendency to do that same thing. Um, people say, well, you're just reading the Bible through the lens of your newspaper. And there have been a lot of people who have done that and said, well, man, look at what's going on in Israel today. And, and that really matches up with what's going on in Revelation. So Jesus must be coming back next month. Or there was a big thing in, uh, oh, what was it, September 12th, like 2019 or 2020 or, no, it was before 2020. But uh, yeah, all kinds of people coming up with all kinds of interpretations because we were looking at scripture through the lens of what's going on in the modern day just like they were doing back in the third century or so when they're saying, well, Israel's not around anymore, so the church must be Israel. But we need to read God's word as, as a normal book in a, a normal way, normative way. All right, Ezekiel 37. Um, let's go ahead and look at the first several verses, uh, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass through among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? It's not talking about Jesus, that's a title Jesus uses often, but he borrowed it from Ezekiel. Um, just to clarify, he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. <laughs> uh, what a great response, right? I, I don't know, but God, you know. <laughs> Again, he said to me. That is an appropriate answer. Yep. He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as it was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. That'd be kind of creepy, right? <laughs> no, we read this and I guess especially as guys think, oh, that's kind of cool. But thinking about actually being there, that'd be, that'd be pretty nuts for sure. All right, verse 8. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He, then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It sounds like it needs to be made into a horror movie or something, right? Uh, that's 
crazy stuff. Well, it was just lucky they had that song, the old wristbones connected. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, they would have been on that stuff, right? Yeah. No kidding. All right, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open the graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you, and I will come to life, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So, what was the point of God telling Ezekiel to bring these dead bones to life? That was, that really happened. And it was a picture of what, Walker? Was it a symbol of what's going to happen? Um... <laughs> down the road? Is yeah, that? Down the road. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I think it was last week or the week before we talked about how there are, um, it's common to see both near and far fulfillments within scripture, right? So we see that they went back from Babylonian captivity and they went into their land. We talked about how uh, Ezra and Nehemiah went, they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple, but the older generation, they cried and they wept because it didn't have the same glory as it did when it was Solomon's temple. And so there was a, a sense in which they went back in that day. But look at verse 14, it says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. I think that speaks to more than what happened when they went back to possess their land from, from Babylon. I think that's looking forward to the future when they're going to possess the fullness of their land forever and ever without it being taken away. Like we saw back in the last chapter that it will be inhabited by the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, uh, for the rest of time. So, yeah, I think it's, again both end. It was partially fulfilled with a near fulfillment and uh, not yet completely fulfilled, so we're still looking to the future for that. Okay, so that's all pretty much future. I mean, obviously this is, wouldn't be dead because that, that would be like what, almost like a resurrection or something like that. Like bones the yeah, so when he was saying that the bones are going to be brought up back to life, that, that really happened, but that was a symbol right. of what he was going to do with his people, Israel. So that they were going to be... This is what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Anyone sat around there didn't see that going on? We're just yeah, when they're under Babylonian captivity, I'm sure they think, oh, we're, we're done, right? Uh, it wasn't long before this that they were told, build houses in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Think about how uh, crushing that would be. They're told by their God, you're going to be there for a while, so <laughs> take out yeah, take out your tools and, and build houses, because you're not coming home anytime soon. You're going to be there 70 years. Uh, yeah, that'd be kind of demoralizing, right? Just take the, the breath right out of you. That's why I need to be put back in there, right? Um, but yeah, it's going to happen in a, a second fulfillment, where as we were talking about these uh, third, fourth century millennialists, they thought, there, there's no way. So figuratively speaking, they were dead, right? Israel was gone, they were nothing. Until 48, and they came back together as a nation, and suddenly there's uh, a glimpse of, of life, and people are realizing, oh man, there, there is an Israel. This country that God made promises 2,000 years ago, they're still around and alive. But they're still not indwelt with the breath of the Spirit, so that's still yet to come. But it still yes. requires a lot of deliberate blindness, deliberate ignoring the facts because the nation of Israel was not in the land, but they still, I mean, all through those years, they were still the people. The people. Yeah. The, and wherever they were, from the United States, it was all through Europe and Russia, and everybody knew who they were and they were still being, so it's it's just selective, um, yeah. what's the word? Anti-Semitism? <laughs> well, I mean... Well, as far as believing in the promises of God. Yeah, but we're just trying to make ourselves, we this, this insatiable need to think we know it all, mm -hmm. that we can explain it. It's, it's just pride of, of, of we're all being, 
Yeah, it's just sad because they were always there. I mean, even in the, in, during World War II, everybody knew all about it. I mean, that was his, that was a, one of Hitler's focuses. Mm -hmm. they, we knew all this time that they didn't disappear. They aren't dispersed like, you know, like the rest of us. We don't know where we came from. I don't know. <laughs> I know yeah. generally where I came from, but I have no idea. I wasn't a, weren't a people, mm -hmm. and the Jews have always been, the Hebrews have always been people. Anyway. Well, there have been people who have recognized yeah. that, so. Yes, well, I was remembering, you know, Corey Denboom's father didn't have that. He, he was very yeah. terribly respectful for them, and he knew God wasn't done with them yet. Yeah. In spite of all that was going on right then. I mean, that's why they risked their lives for Yeah. Successfully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, there were definitely people that didn't have the right understanding of Israel. They thought they had passed away, but um, that wasn't everybody. There were people who had a, a biblical understanding. They knew that God was speaking to, to ethnic Israel, and that was going to fully come to pass. Well, let's jump forward to the New Testament. Let's look in Hebrews 8 at the, the New Covenant how, and how it applies to the church. So remember, it was initially given to Israel, right? And we've already established that Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. They are two distinct entities. But there's, there's some overlap. Um, it's kind of interesting. So Hebrews chapter 8. And will somebody read verses 7 through 13, please? Okay. All right. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming to be Christ over, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them. Write them on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of the from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made um, the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Alright. So a lot of stuff there. Um, going back a little bit. So he said in verse 8 that when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Though that's the same terminology he used back in Ezekiel 37. And uh, the latter part of Ezekiel 37 is also a familiar text, or at least it should be to us around here. Because the Latter-day Saint Church has taken that and they've used that as a, um, a quote-unquote prophecy of the Book of Mormon. I don't know. It's been a while since I've heard that. So um, probably five or six years since I've heard anybody talk about Ezekiel 37. So that might not be um, what they're using nowadays. But that talks about the, the two sticks that are being brought together and made into one stick. And it's talking about Israel and Judah, these two parts of this one nation being brought back together. But they will say uh, very, very interpretatively and eisegetically bring into the text. They'll say, well, that's talking about the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Um, so keep that in mind, too. It's talking about something completely different if you take into understanding the, the context of the first part of Ezekiel 37. And so, the explanation that follows it immediately. Yeah. yeah just <clears throat> context is your friend, right? So if you have a, a passage that somebody brings to you and you're having a difficult time understanding it, just go back a paragraph, go forward a paragraph, and most of the time you'll be able to understand that. Because when you have somebody knocking on your door or sitting down with you and they're especially speaking authoritatively, it can be kind of uh, jarring, right? And get you to to step back a little bit and kind of be on the defensive, but just take the time to read it in context, and most of the time it will make itself clear. All right, so once again, we see that this new covenant is being made with, or has initially been made with the house of Israel and with Judah, and talks about how the Lord is going to, uh, verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be my God, their God, and they shall be my people. And all this ties in with our homework from several weeks ago now from 
Romans 9 through 11, talking about how Israel is uh, a nation, how, like you mentioned, Addie, we're going to be grafted into that tree. Um, any other thoughts or questions on the new covenant and how, how that's all set up? Do you know today if in the nation of Israel, quote unquote, uh, are they still recognizing themselves as two distinct entities, uh, which would be Joseph, which would be Ephraim, which is Israel, and Judah? Or are they still two distinct No, it's just Israel. Really it's kind of combined themselves at this point as one unity? Yeah. Yep. And that was even uh, in biblical times. So that's part of what Ezekiel was talking about in Ezekiel 37 and 36. So they would come back and they would be united as that, that one nation. So that happened even before today. And I don't think there's any um, remnant of people who would make that a delineation, that distinction between the two. Now it's Israel or, or Palestine, right? So that's the, the debate today. All right. Um, we've been on this slide for a while. Let's see if we can move on a little bit. Talk about the distinctions between Israel and the church. So you have a chart on your paper. Everybody have a paper? All right. So uh, talking about election, we saw back in Romans 9 that Israel was elected as a nation. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 talks about how the church is made up of elect individuals. Can I get somebody to read those passages for us, please? Romans 9, 3 through 5, and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Who's got those? All right, Romans. Okay. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. All right, go for it, Andy. No, you're good. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God-blessed forever. Amen. All right, so that's talking about Israel as a whole, right, as a nation, and how God made those covenants, those promises with that ethnic Israel. And then Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the full fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, with the promised Holy Spirit. All and right. Who, yeah. yeah. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance unto, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory? Amen. That's a great passage. Um, yeah, so rich. So we need to recognize that um, when we use this word elect here, we're using it in two different ways. So elect 
can mean chosen. We saw that in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's speaking of being chosen in a, a salvific way. They are chosen for salvation as those who would come to a knowledge of, of Christ in a saving way. Whereas Israel chosen or elect as a nation, um, that's not that doesn't equate to being saved, to being redeemed. That doesn't mean that every Jewish person is going to be with Christ in heaven. So we need to make that distinction. All right. Second uh, distinction is that um, Israel is founded on promise, and then the church is founded on Christ's final sacrifice. So we saw that back in Genesis 12, 15, 17, how God made this covenant, this promise with his people. And then uh, in Acts 20, 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So God, the, the second person of God, right, Christ, he purchased the church with his own blood. Um, and again, that is the same way by which any Jew who is in the kingdom comes to a relationship with God. They are saved through the blood of Christ, just as you and I are saved through the blood of Christ, whether that's pre-Israel, um, pre-church, or even post-church age. Everybody is saved by and through the blood of Christ. Thirdly, we see that Israel is comprised of one nation. It's just Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 7.6. Will somebody grab that for us, please? Got it. All right. And then the church is comprised of many nations. Ephesians 2.13. Who's got that one? Okay. And then also that goes on as we were talking about the, the mystery of Ephesians 3, that the church is many nations. All right. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You got it. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure, possession. All right. Read the next verse too. The Lord. What is it? 600? Seven, seven. Oh, just a pre-thing. Get you guys ready. Come on. <laughs> seven. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than any other pre uh, pe peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. All right. And that same principle applies to the church. That's a, a direct correlation. So just as Israel wasn't chosen because of anything they did, you and I aren't chosen. We aren't elect because of anything that we do, right? Um, but it is the nation of Israel who is chosen by God. And then Ephesians 2.13. Ellie? Mm -hmm. 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Amen. What a beautiful picture, right? We're off and far doing our own thing, uh, enjoying our sin, being children of disobedience, enemies of God. And he has redeemed us to himself, right? He has bought us back. It's good stuff. Amen. All right. And then Israel is built on the foundation of its lineage. John 8, that's actually 839, not 29. And then the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's what we're told in Ephesians 2.20. Uh, Christ is the, the chief cornerstone, but the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Um, in John 8.39, that's where Jesus is talking to the, the Jews, and he said, well, you're of your father Abraham. Or he says, um, you're really of your father the devil. But they say, no, we're, we're children of Abraham, right? That's what they appeal to. They appeal to their, their lineage, their heritage. They're all about their where we came from. Yeah, their, their ethnicity. Whereas my kids aren't going to be Christians just because I'm a Christian. That would be marvelous, but that's not how it works. Um, God needs to draw them to himself. They need to respond. Um, it's a, a personalized um, relationship. Are we good to move on from this page? we still got people jotting notes. All right. Any thoughts or questions while we wait? All right. It would be good to go through Ephesians and do a Ephesians study sometime because it is so great stuff. Rich. Yeah. That's good stuff. It's 
encouraging and relational and personal, um, talking about you know the family and the church and how everything works together. But again, it's just rich with theology and doctrine, and um, it can be deep. Yeah, Logan. Might be a dumb question, but uh, so today, Israel, what would be their, uh, what would religion would they classify themselves as? Or would they be Muslim? Would they be Christian? Would they be? There's a, about 20% Muslims in Israel, in the nation of Israel, um, but most of them are, are Jewish. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, it's kind of difficult. You have to separate the the ethnic Jewish and then the religious Jewish. Mm-hmm. So they would hold to the Old Testament, um, the especially the Torah, um, mm-hmm. but they would deny the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Um, come again. Yeah, yeah, they believe that Jesus was a real person. They just don't think that he was the Messiah, and they don't hold to the New Testament. Most most Israelis today are atheistic, ethnic. Jewish people, the the ones that are are religious are a minority in the country. Isn't Jerusalem like the most religious place in the world or something? Because of how many different like religions they have. Yeah, they have the the Dome of the Rock and that's where the temple is supposed to be and um, yeah, Christianity has ties to to Israel and Jerusalem and like those weird guys with hats. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very religious place. Like Andy said though, that's a, a lot of it is up front. They're just, they're becoming more and more westernized. Uh, they have a, a democracy over there, kind of like we have, and it's unique in that sense. And it's kind of, you know, just chasing after the, the passions of the world like like America is. The less of the eyes, the less of the flesh, pride of life, right? Um, that's universal, of course, but I think the more uh, money and modern culture and technology pump into a, a nation, then the more that you're you're likely to see. And even within the Jewish umbrella of religions, there are different aspects of that. People that are more liberal, more conservative. Um, there are people who won't open up their fridge on the Sabbath on a Saturday because it will cause a light to turn on, and that would be breaking the Sabbath. And then there are other Jews who still hold to the Old Testament, and they're still waiting for the Messiah, but they don't hold to the same teachings, and they're not as Pharisaical in their practices as those other more traditional Jews. Yes. So the older tradition Jews, they believe they follow the covenant that's in the Old Testament. They don't follow the New Covenant. Uh, they follow the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses, and they think, well, we have to keep all these laws, and we are under the law. And um, I, I don't know. I haven't really sat down with a Jew and gone through Ezekiel 36 or Jeremiah 31. I don't know how they would respond to that. That would be interesting. I've done it with uh, Isaiah 53, and they're shocked. They have no idea that it exists. Yeah, so, oh. yeah that brings me to my point. Do they just read, like, um, the Old Testament, they just read like the Torah. Uh, they focus on the Torah, but they they read the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament. But they don't acknowledge the New Testament. Yeah. But they also don't can do the sacrifices, so nobody can mm-hmm. comply right. with the Mosaic Law completely without the temple. Yeah, and they'll just appeal to God's loving kindness that he knows their situation, so he's understanding that they can't offer these sacrifices right now. But yeah, that really offers no atonement, right? No propitiation. If there's no blood being offered, life is in the blood, and their blood's not being offered, and there's no blood being offered on their behalf, and yet they're guilty under the law. So they're under a curse, like Galatians 3 says, right? Everybody who is under the law is under a curse. All right. All right. (laughs) There we go. Good segue, right? Israel is under the law. Exodus 20 and following. While the church is under grace, Romans 6.14 says exactly that, that we are no longer under law, but under grace. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. All right. Um, Israel, rituals required. Um, We see that in Exodus 12 and Leviticus 16. 
and then for the church, the rituals are fulfilled in Christ. Um, actually, going back real quick to under grace, just because we are under grace, we talked about in sermon either last week or the week before how uh, we are under a, a law of love as Christians, right? We're not under the law in the Mosaic sense, but uh, James talks about in James 2.12, the perfect law of liberty and how we have liberty in Christ, but we are to take that liberty and use it for love. Uh, Galatians 6.2 talks about the law of Christ. And again, that, that law that is to be fulfilled. Um, I'm trying to find it. Galatians 6.1 says that, Brothers, if any of you is caught in a sin, he who is spiritual should restore him with gentleness and respect. But watch out for yourselves that you too may not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So we're not under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ. So we are not a lawless people, right? Um, but we are not bound under the law. So when... Paul says in Romans 6 that we are under grace. We are absolutely under grace. Uh, and because of that grace, God has taken, changed us, regenerated us, right? That whole concept of the new birth and made us into new people who will love like he loved. Because he first loved us, we will reflect him and who he is. All right, let's look back at Exodus real quick. Exodus chapter 12. Let's look at some of these rituals that the the Jewish people required. What ritual do we see in Exodus 12? Anybody know offhand? Burning. Hmm? Burning. Burning? Burning? <laughs> um, no? That's what he was trying to say. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> no, that's a little bit later. Uh, Exodus 12 goes over the Passover. Uh, Exodus 12, I'm going to read starting in verse 14. Um, and this is after some of the, uh, the particulars of the Passover have already been explained. This is what you're going to do. You're take this lamb, uh, slaughter this lamb, and dress this way, and eat it this way. And then verse 14, now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove your leaven from your houses. For whatever, whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared for you, or by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day, this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. So there we see Passover and the feast of unleavened bread being initiated and saying, not only are you keeping this as a one-time thing, but every day for uh, the rest of your generations. Yes, Walker. So instead of being like, killed if they didn't do any, any follow all of the rules, they just like get kicked out or something, like banished? If they didn't fulfill yeah, that? if they didn't do any of that. Uh, if they didn't do it that first time, then they were to be killed, right? If they didn't have that blood covering that doorpost, then the firstborn would be killed. Um, and then you get into the uh, civil laws if you don't fulfill that later on, then there are different repercussions for not honoring the the festivals that God had told them to keep as a nation, as a people. Uh, and then one more in that chapter, looking up at 42, same concept there. Verse 42 says, It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. So once again, Israel required rituals. They were built on this idea of we have this feast, we have this festival, we have this Sabbath, this holy day that we need to keep and we need to remember uh, throughout our generations. Uh, keep your, well, I guess we're done with Exodus, but we'll go back to the Old Testament. Uh, looking forward at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, we see uh, a reference to the Sabbath, or not the Sabbath, to the Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. 
say, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ is our Passover, and he also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, for the church, these rituals are fulfilled in Christ. He is our uh, Passover. He's our Sabbath, too. I said that by mistake, but he's mentioned uh, Hebrews 4, I think, as our Sabbath. Um, Leviticus 16, I think that's what you were talking about, uh, Walker. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. Is anybody there? All right. Leviticus 16, and then uh, while he's getting there, will somebody else get ready to grab Hebrews 9, 11 through 14? All right. Walker, whenever you're ready with Leviticus 16.29. Yeah, that's an important part of getting to Leviticus. There's <laughs> <laughs> Leviticus 16.29 yep, 16, through the end of the chapter. All right. All right. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. <clears throat> The priest, um, the priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as a high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred lin linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and, and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year, once a year, <laughs> for all the sins of Israelites, and it was done and as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so the high priest would go in, he'd offer the sacrifice once a year, and the blood from that sacrifice would cover the sins of the people, right? Not permanently, just once a year. And it wasn't paying for them, it was simply covering them. Um, just kind of putting their sins on layaway, so to speak, right? It wasn't making them paid in full, as Christ did. And then Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Hebrews would be a good study too. Talk about rich. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went to the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Amen. All right, and this is right in line with all of Hebrews, right? Hebrews talks about how Christ is superior, how he's superior to angels, superior to Moses, to the Aaronic priesthood, like Melchizedek. He is superior to Abraham. And here he is a superior sacrifice. He is the great high priest. And he's superior to the high priest of the Old Testament. And he is also the, the offering. He offers a better sacrifice than the blood of goats and bulls. But he offers a permanent sacrifice that doesn't need to be offered over and over again. Uh, but it is offered once for all. He doesn't offer that sacrifice for himself um, and then for others. But he just offers it for the, the sins that are committed against him as he is a, a holy God himself. Uh, same concept in... Uh, Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Christ came, and he was a fulfillment of that. Same concept we see up here. Israel required these rituals. The church recognizes that these were just pictures. They were shadows that were pointing people to Christ. And Christ is the, 
the fulfillment. He is the, the essence of what those things were pointing toward. Uh, jumping down in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So once again, the distinction between uh, Israel and the church and our understanding of what these rituals mean, what they represent. Any thoughts or questions on that distinction between the two entities? All right. Next, we see that for Israel, the priesthood was only for some. Um, see that in Exodus 28 and 29, this laying out of how Aaron was to take on the priesthood and how he was to pass it on to his sons. And once again, that concept of lineage, um, but it was to stay in that family. And then in the New Testament, we see that the priesthood is for all. First uh, Peter 2, 9 is a go-to text on that, that we are a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood. How many got those? adjectives mixed up, but uh, we are set apart as priests for the king. And then Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, and it says, And he who has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, why is that important? What was the purpose of a priest? intermediary between sinful people and holy God. Alright, that's how people were to relate with God and commune with God and um, have that relationship, right? And since we have a great high priest in Christ, and since Christ is uh, not bound, right? Since he is um, omnipresent, since he is um, omnipotent, um, we can have that communion, that connection through him. He has made that way available. He has torn that veil from top to bottom through his blood, right? And so you and I have been made priests where we can commune with God. We can have that relationship with God without having to go through another person. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? He is our mediator. He is our way to the Father, um, which is revolutionary for the mind of a Jew, where you have to be of that lineage and you have to go through somebody else in order to have that relationship with God. All right. Israel was looking to Messiah's suffering, uh, future tense. Again, I mentioned Isaiah 53 and how that's not a, a big chapter for uh, a Jew. I've spoken with a couple of Jews who had no idea. I took them to that and read that for them and they said, well, that's got to be in the New Testament talking about Jesus, right? I said, no, that's from the Old Testament. That's from, from the prophet Isaiah. And they were kind of taken aback by that. And then the church is looking to Messiah's reigning. Uh, Revelation 19 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb and her. we are going to be united with Christ as his bride. Uh, we're looking back to what the Messiah has already done and looking forward to our glorification in Christ. Any thoughts or questions on any of those distinctions between Israel and the church? All right. Wait. All right. We'll wait a minute. <laughs> All right. It's just good. Okay. Oh no. Alright, there we go. Alright, because the New Testament distinguishes between the church and Israel, it is necessary for believers to maintain that same distinction. We don't want to go beyond the text of Scripture, right? Um, to me, it's pretty clear that there are two different groups of people. 
Um, and so we have to maintain that same distinction. Otherwise, we are going to get ourselves in a, all kinds of trouble trying to understand and interpret the text. We're going to add to the text or, or twist it and insert different understandings to where that's not the clear meaning of the text. MacArthur and Mayhew in Biblical Doctrine say that conflating the two can lead to significant hermeneutical and interpretive problems in which promises and directives given specifically to the nation of Israel are spiritualized or allegorized and incorrectly applied to Gentile believers in the church. Ironically, we usually don't take the curses and all the bad stuff that is applied to Israel and apply it to ourselves, right? We just kind of pick and choose and take the good stuff and say, oh yeah, that's, that's about us. Um, if we were to do that, we'd want to be consistent, but I don't think that's a consistent hermeneutic. That's what the other class is going through right now, how to study and know your Bible, that very important understanding of reading through the Bible with the proper lenses, the proper hermeneutic. All who are in the lineage of Abraham, Abraham and Israel, but not all Israel is saved. Wait, what does that say? All who are in the lineage of Abraham are Israel, but not all Israel is saved. Yes? Shouldn't that be because Israel is separated from the other children of Abraham and Isaac, so it should just say over the lineage of Israel or Israel because we have yeah. the other Because Ishmael is not. And, and Esau. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So yes, all who are descendants of Jacob or Israel, right, are of that nation, Israel. That would be more precise for sure. But um, they still point back to Abraham as their father. Again, just like the Jews in John 8 did. And they say, oh, Abraham is our father, which is true. But uh, the children of Ishmael are... Yeah, we are also children of Abraham. Yeah. We are believers. Yeah, and there's definitely a distinction. They are not children of promise as uh, Isaac. All right, and this is pointing out that not all Israel is saved. So not every Jewish person is in Christ, right? And we, I think if hit on that. All right. God will one day redeem all Israel. They will go through hardship that the church will not. Because again, the, the church is going to be taken out. The church is going to be removed, raptured, because that is not for us. That's the time of Jacob's trouble, right? Uh, God has some reckoning to do with, with Jacob and uh, it's recompense for their disobedience. Our disobedience has been bought. It's been paid for on the cross, right? So that time of Punishment is not for us. Not that Christians don't go through suffering, because we certainly do, but that specific time of the day of the Lord and God's wrath is reserved for them. All right. Now what? What do you find interesting about Israel's history? That is a long, could be a long answer, but what do you think? All of it. I think it's astounding that that people have been preserved through some of the most horrendous things in history. Yeah. Not only not only from you know the Nazis or whatever, but yeah, modern from, history. From the medieval church. They were persecuting the Jews back in the day in Europe. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah, they've been preserved. God's, and they God's seem to be saved. unique in the the hatred that they, they draw to themselves, right? Yep. Um, and for no real reason, people just have a hatred towards Jewish people. Um, so, I think it's definitely spiritual in, in nature. Yes. So the day that, okay, so wait, Israel became Israel when Jacob would have, had his wrestled with God. Okay, so that. <laughs> yeah. So from then to Jesus' birth, how long was that? I don't know. Don't ask me questions like that. A couple thousand years. Uh, yes. Twenty-two hundred, maybe. And then some of that was like in exile and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they were exiled by Assyria and Babylon and found their way back. Right. And there was always a remnant in Israel. And somewhere in there was when they were in Egypt and when they got freed. Okay. So yeah. So that. The, the way to remember this is that Abraham was two thousand BC. Mm -hmm. The Exodus. It was 1500 BC. So 500 years later. Yes. Okay. 
took that from Abraham to Jacob was a couple hundred, a hundred years or so, and then they were in Egypt for 400 years, and then they were in their land from 15 to 722. Yes, yeah, that was the northern kingdom, mm -hmm. and then the southern kingdom was expulsed in 586. And we can get down to real specific years. Six or five, from the, 597. Yeah, from, uh, even from the building of the Solomon's Temple, they have that calculated down to within one year in 960 or something like that. So it's, it could be pretty precise here, but just mm -hmm. generally 2,500, and then of course Christ. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Wow, cool. Could you say that again? <laughs> 2000. All right. Why is it important that we understand the fundamental distinction between Israel and the church? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Because they're not the same. But the, to me, the biggest problem is the way we understand the Bible, the way we interpret the Bible. Yeah, what, we, what we learn from the Bible is affected by your view, because if you don't get that right, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And you're just blowing smoke and whistling in the dark and mm -hmm. others say <laughs> Yeah, and again, I think there are still people who are in Christ who mix these up, and they are replacement very theologians. Very, very soon, very, very good people. Yes. But there are people who are not, who make that same error, right? Yeah. All right. Um, and then, are you glad that you live during the church age? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in some respects, it would be cool to live prior to that. Probably not post-church age, right? You don't want to be going through the tribulation. But, um, yeah, we are blessed to be in this age because we're not Jewish, right? And yet that way has been opened up for us in this age um, if we were not a part of that national covenant that national uh, election of Israel prior to the church age then in large part we wouldn't be in the kingdom right it's definitely a, it was definitely a lot more strict during the Israel age yeah well it would be fascinating to see the God's wonders that he visited on Egypt Right, yeah. and the curses. I mean, it would be fascinating, but we got Charles and Heston. So. I, you know, looking at it from over here, not in the middle of it, right? <laughs> for sure. I mean, it was still fascinating for them too, because like, you know, we have like more stuff, yeah. but like we can't do that. So, but the thing, is, the thing is, is that you look at those people and they literally start complaining after they've been let out and they're stuck at the Red Sea. They start complaining right there. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've seen God, God dropping flaming balls of stuff out of the sky, you know? Uh -huh. the, the and they plates. just wanted leeks and onions, right? Yeah, they just wanted leeks and onions, yeah. <laughs> Water. So, a question I used to ask a lot when I was like little, I was like, so why doesn't God just make everybody Christians? Because he wants the glory of them to come to it by themselves, right? And I was like, okay, so, but if any of those miracles happened today, people would, like, be astounded. But, like, back then, when those happened, they're like, meh. Well, some of them. Mm -hmm. But they're like, Remember, meh. Luke 16 said that they're not going to believe even if a man comes back from the dead. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They have Abraham, and they have the prophets, so we have everything that we need to believe. And we don't believe because, like, we, in a general sense, humanity doesn't believe because our eyes are, aren't open, right? Because we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and that's exactly how we like it, unless we are an renewed. It is an offense to think that we are not inherently good. Mm -hmm. And to assume that we would believe if, or the world in general would believe if, that's really to, to question God and his perfect sovereignty. And um, well, I think it's natural for our minds to go there because we are still carrying around the flesh with us. Um, God knows what he's doing, right? And he has a perfect plan for everything he's doing. Even those who aren't coming to Christ uh, bring glory to God. So, mm -hmm. yeah.
And I think it's really hard for us, but I think that being saved in the midst of the sin that we see in the world is, it, 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 it's, it's hard to explain or grasp, but it's, but that makes it more yeah. glory for God. Yeah, those who have been forgiven much love much, right? And yeah, but that doesn't mean we go on and sin all the more, right? Romans 6, Romans 3. All right, let's pray. God, you are good and worthy of glory, worthy of praise. We pray that you use us to draw uh, glory to yourself, that we would lift up your name and honor you in all that we do. God, we love you and praise you. Amen. Amen.